Hello, and welcome to the Church on the Hill podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, we invite you to join us live this Sunday at 500 Sands Drive in San Jose, California. Visit churchonthehill.com for service times and directions, and also to learn more about connecting, growing, and serving at Church on the Hill. Now let's join lead pastor Scott Simarok as he teaches at Church on the Hill. All right, if you want to open up to uh, Romans chapter 5, that would be the place where, uh, where I'll get to eventually. Um, Whenever we launch a series, oftentimes I, uh, it takes me a while to prove to you why we need to, uh, to have this series. So let me just start with this, platitudes, proverbs, and promises. When's the last time you used the word platitudes? Probably never. You're all shaking your heads at me. So let me explain what it is. A platitude. It's a worthless cliche or a catchy phrase that's intended to make an obvious point as if it was like, fresh or significant. Let me give you a few examples because I know that definition wasn't very helpful. Um, The phrase, you're as young as you feel. That's not true. You're as young as your birth certificate states. And what's funny about that is like, it all depends on who's saying it. If you're 60 and the person goes, you're as young as you feel, you're like, oh, that's great. When you're 30 and you act like a 12-year-old, You're as young as you feel, right? That's not a good statement. Crime doesn't pay. Well, it does, kind of, right? I mean, or nobody would do it, (laughs) or at least attempt it. What they're trying to say is like the consequences of it and the reality of doing it, like it's not worth it. How about this? It doesn't matter what you're doing as long as you're having... Yeah, that's not true at all. There's all kinds of things I do in my life that are super important, and they're not very fun. Dishes. If it wasn't that important, like, really? Just take a week and don't do any. See how important it is. Here's the problem, though. The problem is that we have spiritual platitudes that float around in our heads, and they float around in our churches, and they float around in our community groups, and they actually masquerade as God's promises. A spiritual platitude. God helps those who help themselves. Not in the Bible. But did you, I don't know if you knew this, but sayings like that have been around, documented since 409 BC. But there was a a guy by the name of uh, Algernon Sidney, whom Ben Franklin borrowed it from. Algernon was the first one to ever quote it exactly like that. God helps those who help themselves. Uh, Ben Franklin put it in the Poor Richard's Almanac in 1739. That's where it originated from. But it's not actually in the Bible. What do platitudes do? And like, why, why do we use them? Spiritual platitudes. You know what I think it is? I think we use them to make us feel better about things that we already believe. Or it makes us feel better because we can justify behaving a certain way by using spiritual platitudes. It's a way of declaring, this is what I want to do, and I want to claim that God's on my side. So I have this spiritual platitude. We can use these phrases to make us feel better. This one's specifically like, listen, I don't want to wait on God. I don't want to pray about this because God helps those who help themselves, right? And it removes the need to wait and say, God, what do you want me to do? So here it is. We can misunderstand the Bible. We can misunderstand God. By treating platitudes like promises. But it gets even harder than that. Because we can also misunderstand the Bible and misunderstand God by making proverbs 
that are in the Bible into God's promises. So real quick, what's a proverb? It's a general principle for wise living. You want to be somebody who's wise, not a wise guy, but someone who lives with wisdom. But it does not address the exceptions. Let me see if I can explain what this means. Ready? Here we go. Proverbs 10.9. It'll be on the screen. People with integrity walk safely, but those who follow crooked paths will slip and fall. Now do this. Uh, if you're an extrovert, turn to your neighbor and tell them what that means. Just use your own words. If you're an introvert, you just keep looking up at the screen because these moments are weirdly awkward. Okay, go ahead. Just tell them what it means. All right, you got it? Okay. Even you introverts, you have to tell yourself that, okay? Uh, Ask yourself this question. Is what you just described actually true? Answer a few questions for me. Do people who have integrity, do they get hurt? Do people who have integrity ever get robbed? Do they ever get in car accidents? Do they ever stub their toes? Do people who have integrity, do they die of perfect health? Think about that one for just a minute. No one dies of perfect health. What about crooked people? Do crooked people always fail? Do crooked people always come in last? Do crooked people always slip up financially, socially, and physically? So if you've answered those questions, they're kind of rhetorical questions, right? We know the answer to them. You've successfully told me that Proverbs are not promises from God. This one is not. It's not actually true all the time. Uh, try this for just a moment. Proverbs 10, 27. The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked are cut short. The general wisdom principle is that your life will go well for you or better for you if you respect and fear God. But if you live a wicked life, your life will somehow be cut Cut short. Is that a promise? No, there's some super wicked 98-year-olds. Right? And there's some young people who seemingly their, their life got cut short, who didn't appear to be that wicked. The point is that it's a wisdom saying, because what's the other option? You know what? No, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to try and live wicked and see how old I can get. There's no wisdom in that. The general principle is that your life will go better for you if we fear God. Um, Here's what's interesting, and I read this this last week, and I've never quite thought about it this way before, and I love it. Proverbs is wisdom that doesn't deal with the exception. And I've never heard it that way before. But then the one writer, they, they put it this way. Proverbs belongs to a whole category of literature called wisdom literature. And a couple of those books are like um, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. They're all kind of Song of Solomon. They're all grouped in this category called wisdom literature. And here's the fascinating part. The books of Job and Ecclesiastes, these two books specifically deal with the exception. Job was a righteous man, innocent before God, feared God, and yet in his life, he suffered horrible things. That's the exception to Proverbs, right? Ecclesiastes uses its phrase again and again and again. Everything is meaningless under the sun. He's not talking about when you get to heaven. He's talking about things here on earth. Like, 
you do these things that are right and it's just seemingly worthless. Why? Because life doesn't turn out how you thought it was promised to you. Isn't that fascinating? That Proverbs are like, here's these general principles that are, that are true most of the time. And then you get Job and Ecclesiastes that are the exception for the rule. Here's my point behind this whole introduction. We misread the Bible when we mistake platitudes and Proverbs for actually God's promises. Doesn't that change how you read the Bible? I mean, you start, you're like, oh, you know what? Tomorrow morning I'm supposed to open up and I'm going to read this. And now you're kind of wondering as you read this, like, is this true all the time? Is this a promise? Or is this just wisdom? Now, even in the New Testament, there's some wisdom statements there that are not promises of God. And so how do you tell the difference? It's, it's really important to figure this out because we can read something and go, oh, that's a promise of God. And then when life doesn't turn out how we thought, we come up this, with this amazing phrase that just says, that's not, thank you. I learned that from my little sisters as they grew up. They drilled it into my thinking, that's not fair. And they would say it just like that. And then as parents, you grow up and you turn that phrase around and you just say, hey, kids, listen, life's not <laughs> fair. In this new series, um, I think it's really important for us to do this because when we think we got a promise from God and life doesn't turn out how we thought, either one of two things failed. Either you think God failed and God's not faithful and God's not trustworthy and if you're a Christian, you're like, well, that can't be true, right? All of the scripture says that God's faithful. God never relinquishes his promises. Well, if God didn't fail, then it must be you. And this is what a lot of Christians live with. You're just unworthy of God's promises. You're just unlovable. You've just done it so bad, so backwards, so wrong for so long. The promises of God, they're true for everybody else, but not for you. Have you ever lived like that? So in this series, here's what we want to do. Platitudes, Proverbs, and Promises. I want to do three things. Number one is this. I want to actually encourage you. I want to bring you courage and confidence in the real hope by identifying the real promises of God in his word. The second thing I want to do is this. I want to actually equip us with some tools so that you're not relying on my word for what are the promises, but that you can actually read the Bible for yourself and know the promises of God and know it accurately. The third thing is this. I want to re remove the myths of false promises. I want to call some of them out. Some of them might be ones that you hold dearly, all right? Open heart, open mind to this, right? But at the end of this, what if we walked out of here four or five weeks from now and you became better students of God's word so that when you sat with him in his word, you're like, I know his promises to me. I want to see hope rise in this month. So if we're going to read the Bible accurately, I do have to give you a couple tools. They're in the blue box in your notes right there. These are terms and tools that are going to help you become a better student, an accurate reader of God's word. Let me just give you one word. It's kind of a $20 word here. Ready? Exegesis. And everybody said, woo, right? Ex means out of. Jesus, this, this to lead out of. It's discovering the meaning of a biblical text that comes out of the author's original intent of the text by asking certain questions. 
about the context. Like, why was he writing that? What happened before that verse was written? What happened after that verse was written? What happened in the story that that statement was made? What about the history of what was going on then? How did they use those words? What type of literature is this? What's the purpose for this author writing this letter? How does this truth, this verse, connect with all the truth of God's word? It's not just approaching it from, and come on, I'm going to call us all out at this moment. How many of us are so guilty of like, I just need some hope for today. And you open up the Bible, and you're like, you pick a verse, and you're like, God, this is your verse for me today. Come on, we're, we're cherry picking the Bible if we're really, really truthful about it. I do it sometimes too. Sometimes I read a weird verse, I'm like, nope, that, nope, nope, until I find something that agrees with me. Exegesis. It's this, it, it's taking the meaning out of the text as opposed to my life reading it into the text. Um, th- there's a book, I'm gonna, it's in your notes there. It's written by Gordon Fee and uh, Douglas Stewart. The book is called this, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. Can I just say this, some of you? You should go on Amazon and order this. And let it, it's not even a book to read from front to back. It's like, hey, if you're reading in Proverbs right now, go to the the chapter on Proverbs and read about Proverbs. Maybe you're going to go to the epistles section. That big $20 word means uh, just letters, like the writings. And so these letters, maybe you would read the chapter on that. Can I just say this? Because you need to be an informed student of God's word and not just a cherry picker of God's verses because we end up misapplying platitudes in Proverbs for promises and it would leave you disappointed either in God or in yourself. So this is what they write. A text cannot mean what it could never have meant for its original readers. I'm going to read that again. A text cannot mean, it cannot mean something to you, what it could never have meant for its original readers or hearers. The true meaning of the biblical text for us is what God originally intended it to mean when it was first spoken or written. You've been in a small group maybe before. Or, or a Bible study with people, and you're discussing it, and someone says, well, what this verse means to me is alarm bells should start going off in your head. It's fine because if we're saying like, well, this is how I'm going to apply this truth to my life, but when we start saying things like, well, this is what this verse means to me, well, no, the verse means something. It meant something back then when it was written. It actually means something today. You can apply it to your life, but it doesn't change the meaning of what it means because it meant something, so therefore it meant something, so therefore it means something today. How's that for clarity? This, um, the point is that we just don't have freedom to add meaning to the text. Read this and tell me what it means. Ready? be on the screen. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Such a great verse. Some of you have knitted it, quilted it, crocheted it, tattooed it. You're like, listen, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I was at a rally in Southern California with high school students, and uh, we were at this university, and it was, it, was, um, it, was a, it was an amazing night. The whole purpose is to encourage these high schoolers, and a lot of them who grow up in uh, kind of impoverished areas, they come to this university, and they have this great night. It's totally Christ-centered. Well, out on this field drives this um, blinged-out Ford Thunderbird, 
LED lights everywhere. And that was super cool because like, gosh, this is probably in the late 90s. So this is, it was amazing back then. Today you're like, oh, that, they're all over the place now. This guy drives on the field. And he gets out and he starts kind of rallying the crowd and like getting them all excited. And he says, repeat after me. I can do, I can do, do all things, do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And he just gets the crowd like chanting back and forth. And then he turns towards his Thunderbird. All the lights pop up and he goes. And he jumps over, not the hood of his car, the top of his car. I was like, dang. That was impressive. And then he gets three people from the crowd. And he takes one and has him climb up and lay on the top of the Thunderbird like, whew. Then he gets a gal and has her lay on this end and gets another gal and has her lay on this end. Three bodies that now raise the height of the Thunderbird. And he comes back to the crowd. I can do. Let's just do this for a minute, all right? Repeat after me. I can do. Do all things. Through Christ, who strengthens me. And he runs full speed, launches himself. And what happens next deeply matters, right? I mean, what happens next is either this is a promise of God or it's not. He slips, hits the first person, injures them, toppling one after another. The the last one lands on the ground, comes up, broken arm. I can't do. Do all things through Christ who apparently did not strengthen me. Now, what I just told you about that story is not true. He jumped, launched, then he had like this much room between his backside and, yeah, he made it though. But it was interesting. How many times did you try and soar in life and you didn't soar, you came up short? Because in that audience that day, there's kids watching. And, And I get what, I'm not saying it was wrong for him to do that. Because there might have been a kid, a girl of 12 years old who lives in a family that's impoverished, who might have heard that and thought, God, could I do all things through Christ who might strengthen me? Could I be the first in my family to graduate from high school? If, if, if I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, could I be the first in my family to graduate from college? Could I be the first in my family to have a family that doesn't end up in jail? Could I really do all things through Christ who strengthens me? And it might be that moment that, man, the courage raises in her to say, I'm going to try. God, I believe in you. I want to walk with you to see what you can do. Do you see what I'm saying? Like That could raise awesome momentum. Change the picture, though, from the Thunderbird and the people on the top and the, whoa, yeah, he did it. To an old man in Rome, living behind bars, whose name is the Apostle Paul, and in the confines of his jail cell, 
living under a sentence of death, he thinks, God, I really think you want me to write this down so that people will know who you are and how you function in a Christian's life. And he pens the words, I know what it is to be in need. As he looks around at his jail cell, probably needing something warmer or something more to eat. And he also writes the words, and I know what it is to have plenty as he thinks back upon his life in the great moments. And I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. This is a man who's writing 30 years after Jesus came back to life, who did more for the gospel than anyone else as far as spreading the message of Christ, all through Asia Minor, into Europe, and now he's in jail. Tradition has it that Paul's life was ended because because he was beheaded. Right after those words that I just wrote to you, he writes... I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. When I am suffering and when I am going without and when I am struggling, I look to Christ. It's in his power that I live. It's in his hope that I live. It's in his name that I live. It's in his name that I will make any sacrifice because my sacrifice will never match the sacrifice that he made for me. That's what the text means. That's what the text says. I just wonder. Sometimes my mind imagines things. I just imagine the Apostle Paul looking down from heaven on a blinged out Thunderbird in the late 90s with a cheering crowd and a soaring man doing something amazing. And I just wonder what he's thinking. Maybe he's like, yeah, jump, jump, go, go. Or maybe he's like, that's not what I meant. (laughs) Go back to that little girl for a moment. Do you think that that little girl for the rest of her life because of that moment and that verse of a misapplied promise. Her whole life is going to go up and to the right and just soar, and she's never going to deal with disappointment. She will have to come to a mature belief in the Scriptures. Maybe that verse, God used it to a place where, man, she was able to like follow Jesus, and it changed her life. But at some point, she has to come to an understanding of the accuracy of Scripture, that that was not a, a promise of God intended for the purpose of jumping over cars, or you deciding that whatever it is I choose to do, God's surely going to bless it. Because when that 12-year-old becomes a 25-year-old and she fails at something, or disease enters her family, or disappointment is there, she's going to have to go either God failed me or I failed him and he doesn't love me and bless me anymore. And we all got to grow up to read the scriptures so that we're not taking platitudes and proverbs and mistaking them for God's promises. Y'all with me? You okay now? I hope what's running through your, your head is um, maybe all the things that you believe about God. And you might be asking, 
did I put the meaning into the text? Can I give you the $20 word that that means? It's called eisegesis. If exegesis is taking the meaning out of the text, isa means into. It's mean you bring your life and you're bringing all the meaning into the text because it's what you want it to believe. Now, here's where this gets both complicated and beautiful. Hebrews 4.12, it states this. Let me just read it to you. For the word of God, by the way, I don't think it's in your notes. You might write it down. Write that verse down. Read it this week. Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. What does this mean? Some people aren't sure who wrote Hebrews. Some people believe it's Paul. But what did the author mean? What did the Holy Spirit move this writer to pen these words? So we first ask, what was the intent? Because God's word is alive and active, we have to ask this question. When it was first written, the belief is that God breathed into spoke, moved by the Spirit of God, these writers to write the words of God. I don't have time to go into that more. But because it's alive and active, it means this. When we read it, God can still speak to you through it. He knows what's going on in your heart, your mind, your relationships, your workplace. He knows all of that. He is so omniscient and omnipotent, all-knowing and all-powerful, that when you sit down to meet with him, I believe this is what this verse means. It's alive and it's active, meaning it's not dead, it's not stale, and it's not just something that was inspired years ago. It's still God breathes life into it today. So tomorrow morning when you sit down and you open the word of God, I believe that this is what this verse means, accurately translated. It will be alive and active as you read it, which means he might speak from his word into your life. Now, let me be clear about this. Every time I sit down to read the Bible, I don't feel like God breathes something and be like, oh, this is what you should do with your kids. Oh, this is what you should do in your marriage. Oh, this is the vision for the church. Like, that doesn't happen all the time. I just, I rely on the truth of what it is that I'm reading, but there are some moments where I feel like God is speaking directly to me. Doesn't that make this beautiful? I said, Jesus, though, is when we start taking all of the, by the way, reminder, the text cannot mean what it could never have meant for its original readers or hearers, right? So I can't say, I feel like God just breathed this message into me. And you're like, well, actually, that, that isn't what that verse says at all. I would question what God just breathed into you. Is that actually from God? Or do you want something so badly in your life that you're willing to believe that God just promised you something just because you want that promise? You okay with me on that? You're all looking at me like, that's not what I came to church to hear. Here's what I want to do. The word hermeneutics, it's another $20 word. Exegesis is when you take a verse and you, you, you extract the meaning from it. Hermeneutics are like the, the, the rules and the guidelines that govern how you read a text. I, I just think you should know that word. Um, here's some, some rules in hermeneutics. Like Proverbs, they're wisdom saying, not promises. That's one. Here's a second great one. When the plain sense makes sense, don't look for any other sense. 
It's such a great statement. When you're reading the Bible, when the plain sense actually makes sense, don't look for other sense. Like, there's some creative translating that people do. When you're reading prophetic books, Isaiah, Jeremiah, can, can I just tell you this? The majority of prophetic statements that are written actually speak to their time and their era hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, and they are not actually prophecies for the future. Did you know that? The, the majority of prophecies in the scriptures are actually a word for their day, not our future. Now you've got to figure out what's the difference between the two. We don't have time for that, but that's one of the hermeneutical guidelines. Um, I would say this, that book by Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart, I, get it, get it, get it, okay? Pick it up. L- let me give you just one more resource here. Um, if you haven't been around our church for a while, this might be new to you. If you've been around our church for a while, um, you're going to have heard this many, many times. Um, this right here, it's called the Life Journal. Got them in white, orange, green, leather. Inside here is a method of reading the Bible so that you can be a student of the Bible, so that you can accurately understand. And we just call it the SOAP method. So every time that we sit down and write out a scripture, we, we, we read something, and then we take the S, the scripture, and we just journal in there words directly from the Bible. And then we ask this question, what does it mean? And so the O of SOAP stands for observation, which means this, we're going to write down observations from the text. We don't write what it means to me is, no, 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 you're trying to write down things that are actually stated as this is the truth, not your opinion. We get this wrong all the time. I've been in so many groups where we just share this, and, and all of a sudden we start getting weird observations because there's eisegesis going on. You're adding meaning to the text. I will tell you this, it takes a ton of practice. And so can I invite you to practice it? Um, at our info booth in the lobby, uh, we just put out a bunch of these today. If you don't have a practice of how to read the Bible and you want to learn this, can I just invite you to go pick up one for free? And then when it's of value to you, um, come back and purchase one for somebody else. You see how I did that? It's free. And then when you realize the value of it, you come back and buy some for other people, Okay. Um, I do need to move on because um, I haven't even gotten to the promises, and I'm really pretty much out of time, so let me fly through this. Here it is. Y'all came, hopefully not to just know about platitudes and proverbs, but let me give you a promise from God. It's always true, and it's in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, and it is a promise for every Christian, and it's the promise of peace. Here it is. Christians, you are at peace with God because of this. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's ask the question, what was the original intent of Paul when he wrote those words? He's writing to Christians, first of all, who have been justified. Well, what does that mean? It means that they've been declared righteous before God, that they're innocent, that if someone looked at your life and you stood before a judge and they said, is he guilty or he's innocent? The judge would say, you're free to go. There's no charges filed against you. Is it because you didn't do anything wrong in your life? No, you know that. It's because standing behind you was Jesus, who said all your debts, all your sins, all the things that you've ever done in the past, in the present, and in the future, I paid for those on the cross. 
Therefore, since we've been justified, declared righteous through our faith, that means just the only way we could get is to receive it. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That peace means this. There's a peace treaty signed by the blood of Christ with your name on it. He's not at war with you. You don't have to earn his favor, approval. You and him, you have peace. You're united if you've been justified by the blood of Christ. Have you ever heard, um, kind of maybe in movies and something, uh, at the end of someone's life, maybe they know they're going to die, uh, and someone might say, you need to go make your peace with God. Or you need to go get your affairs in order. And maybe they're talking about something spiritual. Can I just say this? Christians, you don't have to go make your peace with God. Your peace with God has already been made through Christ when you, by faith, accepted the gift of forgiveness. You, you're a walking peace with God. It's not something you have to do at the end of your life because it's already been done for you, for you and you've received it. Let me go get my affairs in order. Maybe financially, maybe relationally, but not with God because your affairs between you and God, they've been put in order. So Christians, stop walking around with guilt. Stop walking around with shame. Do you walk daily knowing that you are loved and approved by God? Do you walk with that smile and that kind of confidence just says, I'm loved by God? Or do you walk through life like, I'm not liked by enough people. I don't have enough followers. There ain't no Eeyore Christians. You're loved by God. You're completely at peace with him. You're like, but pastor, but pastor, I still struggle with sin. I know. But he's declared you righteous in his sight. So don't abuse that. Let's live for him, for his glory. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. I think it changes how we live. Let me give you one more thing real quick about God's peace. Christians can move from anxiety to peace. And I want you to hear this because this is a real issue and it's become so exacerbated in the last several years. Anxiety is a real deal. And can I just say this physiologically, biologically, anxiety attacks some of you and I'm not gonna minimize it and I'm not trying to shame you like, get over it, I'm not. But I do think that because this, these scriptures are a promise that says there's something you can do about it in Christ, that I'm asking this question, have we accepted the anxiety that we have as there's nothing I can do about it? Our world's a mess, therefore I just live anxious. Read these words. Philippians chapter four, verse six. Do not be anxious about anything. What does the text say and mean? It's a command of God. Don't do it. Stop it. But in every situation, uh, in some situations, no, no, you don't understand, Pastor. Things are going so bad in my life right now. Like, in most situations, I'm not anxious. But in this one, I'm, uh, anxiety is just the norm. Anybody would be anxious if they were in my shoes. No, no, no. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, here it is. By prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understandings, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's a command of God but it's dependent on something, which means this. You and I, we can accept this and work this into our life, or we cannot do these things and just live with anxiety. It doesn't mean you're going to hell. It means you're going to carry some things that God never intended you to carry, though. First, 
pray and ask for God's help. And when you pray, be thankful because anxiety makes us look at our life of all the bad things that are happening and we forget all the blessings and all the good things that we have. So be thankful. And then he says this, present your request to God. Seek his hand. God, this is what's going on in my world. But I know this, I don't carry this alone. You carry this with me. So God, I'm gonna give the outcome of this to you. Whether it turns out for what feels good to me or what feels terrible to me. I'm gonna live for your glory. So I present this to you. And here's the promise, that peace comes from God. It's a peace that probably won't make sense to other people around you. Like, man, their life is jacked up, but they're kind of at peace with it. And I don't understand why I wouldn't be. It's certainly not going to make any sense to people who aren't believers. A, a peace that transcends all understanding. God will put a guard over your heart and your mind as you stand in Christ Jesus. The one who wrote these words inspired by God, who sat in a prison cell under the sentence of death, said this, you don't have to have anxiety, you can have peace. Just looking around the room, I, I don't know if it's true online, but just looking around the room, there's no one here in prison cells living under the threat of death. And yet Paul penned those words, living in those circumstances, to push anxiety to the curb and say, I live in a prison cell in the peace of God that transcends my own mind and everybody else's mind. Nobody wants cheap peace promises written by a man sitting in the comfort and the safety of his own castle, right? This was penned by a man who was experiencing suffering. And he's like, anxiety ain't got no grip on me. It's a very loose translation of the text. But it's truth. Have you accepted anxiety in such a way that you're not willing to grab on to the promises of God in this city? You're not just at peace with him, but you can have peace here and here, despite your circumstances. See, I'm not here to poo-poo a bunch of words of the Bible and be like, that's not a promise, that's not a promise. This is a promise. Romans 5.1 is a promise. But I'm not sure we live into the promise, and so I just want to challenge you, invite you, and welcome you to start living the promises, the true promises of God as they're found in the Scriptures. Amen? Bow your heads, let's pray. <clears throat> Y'all have been patient and kind to listen to my rants from the Scriptures. But there's something that I just deeply believe in me is that God's Word brings hope. And it brings life. And if you're just showing up every Sunday for this, I'm just concerned. I'm concerned that you're not experiencing the peace of God when you could be feasting daily on his word. So, eyes closed, heads bowed. How are you going to apply this? Can I just give you a few ideas? There's life journals at the info booth. Pick one up. Become a student of God's word. Order that book I was talking about. Become an educated follower of Christ, not someone who's going to live off of platitudes. There's some of you sitting in this room 
that you need to accept God's peace with him by being forgiven and declared righteous and justified in the sight of God. Maybe you're carrying something with you that you just, you don't need to carry with you anymore. And maybe you are what you would call a Christian, but man, you're still carrying some shame and guilt around. Deliver that to the foot of the cross today and be declared at peace with God. And I think there's a big group in this room that you live with anxiety And yet you need to step into this place and receive the peace that God offers. Lord, whatever it is folks are dealing with in this room, I know it's a lot, but I believe that your promises are more powerful than the anxiety and the troubles that we'll face. And so God, in this moment, in this time, I pray that there's some people who will cross the line of faith in their prayers right now and accept this peace with you. Lord, I pray that there's some people who are so motivated that They want to become students of your word. And Lord, I pray against the anxiety in this room that you are more powerful than the troubles. You're more powerful than the the worries and the concerns that we have. And yet, Lord, I certainly don't want to shame any of us because our lives have become overwhelmed. So Lord, instead of shame, I pray that confidence would rise in us right now and that we would say yes, to the habits where you promise peace. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, stand with me. Let's sing.